Hi, everybody. Good morning. Uh, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head out the back, Teacher Omicha. It's just an age-appropriate setting for our uh, our young kids to to study the Bible in their own way. Is that the word I'm looking for? Age-appropriate way. Um, so as they're going, let me open us in the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have been counted worthy to be called by your name. And uh, Lord, we confess and we acknowledge it's not our own intrinsic inherent worth in who we are, but Lord, it's because you have placed your love and affection on us. Thank you for calling us to be your own. And uh, Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather together uh, as the church to hear and to study your word, to worship together, to offer songs together and to pray, um, and just to be the people of God together and, uh, and recognize your presence with us. So we pray that you would be with us. And Lord, I pray for Rich Seston, who's not with us this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for the medical miracle of hip replacement surgery, where he could be walking that afternoon. Lord, that just still blows my mind that we can do those things. And Lord, it's not because human beings are so clever. That is a sign of common grace, that you give us the ability to heal and to cure diseases that well. And we thank you that Rich went through the surgery well. We pray for Bev as she continues to care for her and provide for her husband. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that um, Rich's pain would go away soon and that he would be, uh, be healed and restored to us. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that as a church body, we would love and care for him. So help us to, uh, to provide for that family the way that we should. And Lord, I also want to praise you and thank you for the safe arrival of Stephen Aaron, Aaron Reddypenning. Um, and uh, thank you for Lizzie's uh, safe delivery. Uh, I'm grateful that she's home, and I pray that you would help her to body to heal. Uh, Lord, uh, childbirth is not something for the, the weak and the wimpy. This is only something a woman can do. And uh, so we thank you that you were with uh, Lizzie and with Aaron during the, the delivery. Thank you that her sister is visiting, her family is coming, that she'll have a good support network. And we just look forward to meeting Stephen and to helping him and uh, the ready pennings raise him in the Lord. So we ask your blessing on them as well. Uh, Father, would you be with us now? Holy Spirit, would you open your word to us? Jesus, may we see you clearly in what we're about to study. Be with us in, this, in, the, um, in the preaching and the teaching of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're finishing chapter 5, and what happens in chapter 5 is really a pivot point in the book of Acts. So we're about, things are about to change. Uh, so far, what we've seen is apostles preaching the, the gospel, getting some resistance, but nothing terrible. Did you hear how Aaron or how um, Chris finished that reading? He talked about them beating the apostles. Um, that's kind of Luke sending us a cue. Things are about to get bad. The persecution is going to ramp up. People are going to die. And so what he does today with this last section of chapter 5 is he's doing something to prepare us for that event, for what comes after this, this, this shift that's about to take place in the book, he's going to prepare us for it. And he does it, the primary portion of the scripture is really Gamaliel's advice, Gamaliel's recommendation. And it's, it's much more complicated than it sounds. When, when Chris read it, it sounded pretty straightforward, didn't it? it? It's a little more nuanced and a little bit more complicated than that. So really the heart of this message is going to be Gamaliel's advice, but we have to get there first. Why does he give this advice? Well, he gives that advice because the apostles are in trouble again. Now, you remember last week, they went to the temple and nobody would go with them. It was too intimidating. You're heading right into enemy territory, but the apostles went in. 
And we talked about gospel courage, where they would go in and preach the gospel because they knew that God had told them to. And what happened was last week we said they got arrested. They're thrown in a common prison. And because God's not about to let them just rot in prison, he sends an angel in the middle of the night and they walk right out of their jail. And the way it ended last week was the, 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 uh, the Senate assembles, the high fluting people. It says in, um, in verse 21, the high priest and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the Senate of the people of Israel. They're gathered to hear from these people who are preaching this, this terrible stuff in the temple. And when they gather, they send a guard and they say, go retrieve the prisoners. And you can just imagine them being all regal and important and full of robes and high pointy hats and things as they send for the prisoners. And the guard gets there and the prison's secure. There was no Wild West explosion blowing a wall open or anything. The place is secure, the guards are standing there, but the prisoners are all gone. And as they're marveling over this and going, how on earth did that happen? Somebody comes running in, hey, they're in the temple. And they're preaching and teaching again. And it's just mind-blowing. How on earth did that happen? So we ended there last week. The first part of this really kind of continues that story of this, this gospel courage, that they would go right back into the temple after they'd been arrested. Um, but it kind of ties into Gamaliel, so I decided to, to cover it this week. So here's what happens is they bring the prisoner. They, they go, you remember last week, they went to the the temple. The temple police go, and instead of roughhousing them and, and throwing them in, in handcuffs and tasering them and pepper spraying them, the people are loving them. And so they, the guards, you know, I just picture these fully, you know, military armed people come up and say, excuse me, sir, would you come with me, please? And they kind of escort them to the council because they're terrified. The people are loving them. So this is what happens next. They bring them into the council, and here's the response. So it starts, when they brought them, they set them before the council, and then the high priest questioned them. The high priest, the big muckety-muck, the most important person in the council, the one that everybody looks to, this high priest questioned them. He didn't have some flunky do him. He didn't have some lawyer step up. He is the one who questions them. He looks them right in the face, and he says, um, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is the charge laid against them. Um, the sentence looks pretty straightforward. There's actually some nuance to it. What he says is he says, we strictly charged you not to teach. And he did. That was the last time they brought him for the council. They said, okay, don't ever talk about this guy again. Now go away. Like that's going to work. And now he brings him in. He says, we strictly charged you. That phrase, strictly charged, is something called a Hebrewism. A Hebrewism. And what that means is the way it's written is not a typical Greek way to say it. It's more of a typical Hebrew way to say it. So what, what's going on there is that word strictly charged. It doesn't have the word strictly in it. It has charged twice. Charged, charged. That's a Hebrew way of saying something. So Hebrew would say that word twice to stress it, to make it important. So the example is from Genesis. When God created Adam, he gave him the law of the garden. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For surely in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's how it's translated. If you look at it in the Hebrew, a more strict literal translation would be, in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. And that's just a Hebrew way of saying, you shall surely die. Your death is secure if you eat of it. So that's called a Hebrewism. And that's what we're seeing here is the, the high priest speaks to 
the apostles in a way that a Hebrew would speak. But what, so what? That's an interesting little tidbit, so who cares? Well, here's what's going on is this isn't something that got passed on third hand and he said and, and written down in strictly in Greek. This is written the way that it was said. That means that somebody was in that council and heard this. This testimony is sure, it's important, it's true. So somebody was there and heard this and reported exactly what they said. This isn't like, you know, somebody's grabbing it and now translating it or uh, say it in Greek. So who was there? I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. There is some tradition that Gamaliel, who we heard about in the second part, became a Christian. Um, he became Saint Gamaliel and was baptized by Peter and John. It always happens like that. You get one name and he turns into something big. There's no real great historical evidence that that's what happened. But if he did, maybe he's the one that reported, this is, this is what happened in the council that day. It might be Joseph of Arimathea. You remember him? He was the one who took his life in his own hands, put his career on the line, and grabbed Jesus off the cross and buried him. So maybe Joseph didn't lose his job, and he's there, and he reports to the church, this is what was said. Told him in Aramaic or in Hebrew, and that's the way it got transmitted. Um, my pet theory, and I wish this was true, I, don't, I can't prove it, but it would be really neat, is maybe Paul is there. Because later on, when Paul's giving his defense, he said, look, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I studied under Gamaliel. So if he's still under Gamaliel and Gamaliel's there, maybe, maybe Saul of Tarsus is there. I wish that were true. I don't know what if it is or not, but that just seems like it would be neat that Luke, who hung around a lot with Paul, would get this testimony from Paul and say that's what happened. The point is, this is one of those hints, this is really an accurate testimony of what was going on. And that's important. It'll become important when we get to Gamaliel. You'll see that in a minute. So he says, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name, and you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled Jerusalem. What did Jesus tell these guys? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What have they just been accused of? Doing what Jesus told them to do. You filled Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in the last section, what we heard was they said that, that people were coming from the towns around Jerusalem. So it's already beginning to spread. People are coming from other areas to come in and see this Peter who is healing people. And maybe his shadow will fall on us and we can get healed. So what, you, what we're seeing here is exciting because it is the expansion of the church. It is the ongoing progress of exactly what Jesus told them it would do. You're filling Jerusalem with this teaching. And then the last part, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's another Hebraism. 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 I was calling it Hebraism or something. Anyway, it's a Hebrew way of saying it. And what that means is you're trying to make us guilty of an innocent man's blood. Now, if you look back in the Old Testament, there, there's plenty of places where it talks about uh, the blood of somebody being on their own head or being on somebody else's head. So, for example, as Moses is giving them the law, he talks about the cities of refuge. And he said, so let's, let's imagine for a moment a man is chopping wood and the axe head slides off the handle and strikes somebody in the head and kills him. The man had no ill will, didn't do it on purpose. It was totally accidental. The avenger of blood could come and kill that man. Blood for blood, life for life. And so what God did in his mercy, he said, I'm going to establish these cities of refuge. And where if that happens, this innocent person can flee to the city of refuge. And when he gets there, the elders of the city will evaluate the situation and give him uh, sanctuary. The avenger of blood cannot come in and kill him. If the avenger of blood comes in and kills him, his blood is on the avenger's head. 
So that's that Hebrew way of thinking about this blood on him. So when the, when the priest says that, in a Hebrew way of thinking, this is bad. You're trying to make us guilty of an innocent person. Were they guilty? Did they kill Jesus? They absolutely did. They turned him over to Pilate. They trumped up charges. They stirred up a crowd. They're totally guilty of his blood. But they think they're innocent because they think Jesus deserved to die. So what they're saying is, you're trying to convince us that Jesus was innocent and we killed him anyway. That's what they mean by that. Now, that's hearing it from a Hebrew way of reading. What if, what if a Christian reads that? Remember when Luke wrote this, it was probably in the 60s. So there'd be a lot of Gentiles who may not be terribly familiar with the, the Hebrew way of thinking. What would they hear when they hear, you're trying to bring his blood on us? They would go, hail and amen, brother. Come under the blood. You need to be, his blood is what will secure your forgiveness. Of course we're trying to bring the blood on you. That's good news. That's not bad news. So it's, it's tricky because there's these two ways to read it. I think Luke records it that way, puts it before us that way, because that's exactly the same kind of thing that's going to happen with Gamaliel's advice. We'll see that in a minute. So those are two Hebraicisms. Those are, those are way that they talk about, um, uh, or it, it makes it sound like it's authentic. This is really what happened in the chamber. How do Peter and the apostles respond? They say, we must obey God rather than man. Last time they were brought in before the council, do you remember what they said? In, in chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Now what he's telling them is, you failed to judge, you judged incorrectly, and so we're not going to ask you again. We're telling you. We must obey God rather than you. Period. End of discussion. So he tried to invite them in a first time. They wouldn't follow, and so now he says, this is the way it is. We're not going to listen to you. Now he goes through, and what he gives them is yet another chance to become a Christian. Listen to how he explains it. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed hanging on a tree. The God of our fathers. Christianity did not start as a totally separate religion. It starts from the apostles' point of view as they're trying to bring Judaism to its fullness. The Messiah has come. The God of our fathers has done this. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't some new thing that's happening. This is something that's been going on all along. What they're trying to say is, look, we're not out of line with the traditions. We're showing you where they lead to. The God of our fathers has done this. He raised Jesus. There's the resurrection. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. There's the crucifixion. The, the picture of hanging on a tree doesn't mean he was hung by his neck from a rope. The tree is an, a symbol. It's an emblem of the wood of the cross. You killed him by having him crucified. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and then, he doesn't just leave it at the resurrection. The next thing he says, and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. The ascension. This Jesus, whom you killed, who God raised, we watched him ascend into the clouds, and he is now seated at the right hand of power. This is what the Messiah does. He rules and he reigns. He is at God's right hand, and that's where he is. What is he doing as he rules and reigns? Well, he gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You have to come to repentance and have your sins forgiven. Even you, high priests, even you, imperial senate, even you, count, ruling council, you need to have your sins forgiven. That is that gospel confidence. He would look the, the most important people right in the face and say, you're a sinner and you're going to hell if you don't change. And I'm here to offer you hope in Jesus Christ. 
As they're persecuting him, as they're saying, stop talking about him, Peter just says, no, you have to understand you're in grave peril. You need to be forgiven. You need to come to repentance. And he says even more. He goes even further than just this is, this is a, 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 some abstract statement. He says, and we are witnesses to these things. What did Jesus tell him? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They're confessing. We are witnesses to these things. We watched Jesus minister. We watched you kill him. We watched that he rose from the dead, and we stood there with our jaws on the ground as he ascended into heaven. We are witnesses to these things. Oh, but that's not enough. It's not just us. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is sealing and testifying to this too. That's a huge promise. That is a, co- a covenantal promise if you think about it. Jeremiah 31 talks about what the new covenant will be like. And part of it is this promise of the Spirit. The Spirit. He will put his law on your heart. That's the work of the Spirit in your heart. And so they're testifying to really in this one brief sentence, the entirety of the gospel. I have tremendous news for you. You can receive the Holy Spirit. You can receive repentance. You can have forgiveness of sins because of who Jesus is and what he's done even if you're the ones who killed him. You can still have forgiveness. It's a tremendous statement. And then he ends by saying, whom God has given to those who obey him. So what does that mean? This, this whom God gives to... So it is the message that Peter just preached, look, if you try real hard and you obey God and you get most of the rules down and you can be really good enough, then God will give you his Holy Spirit. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Why would he give you his Holy Spirit? You've already got it nailed. That's not what he means by he gives to those who obey him. When he talks about obeying him, it's actually a little bit of a complex way of saying things. Uh, similarly, it's said in Romans 10, 16, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 1 Peter 4, 17, talks about obeying the gospel. That should cause you to go, wait a minute. <laughs> is the gospel a set of rules that you must obey? What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ died for your sins, was raised again for your justification, ascended into heaven where he rules now, and you need to have faith in him. If you trust him, your sins are forgiven. There is no command where you have to clean up your life and do something right. So when you obey the gospel, what you're doing is you're trusting in that message. You're saying, Lord, okay, I accept that. That's true. So that's what he means here is the Holy Spirit is given to those who will trust in that message, who obey the gospel, who obey God. Um, they receive the Holy Spirit because when you look at it the other way around, that Jeremiah 31 passage I mentioned says that God's going to write his law on your heart. The work of the Spirit is engraving that law on your heart so that you will obey, not you obey and then you get the Spirit. It's, it's, it's backwards there. But that's what he's talking about is you need to submit to this message is what his message is, is what he's telling them. So that's the message that Peter has for them. That's the, 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 the hope that he presents to them is you can be saved. And what's the response? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. When you tell somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you tell somebody that Jesus has died for their sins, you get various responses, don't you? Think about how people have responded when you shared the gospel. Sometimes people will just look at you and just, no clue, you could have been speaking some other language. They have no idea what you're talking about. Some people hear it and go, oh, that's interesting, and then press on to something else. Some people hear and thank God they believe. They go, this is the best thing I've ever heard. I can't believe that's true. Thank you for sharing that with me. And some people get mad and want to punch you because you're shoving your religion down my throat. 
That's what these folks are saying is they're now, they've heard the message and they're angry and they want to kill him because what they've just told him is, you know that blood on you thing? That's true. You did kill an innocent man. Not only did you kill an innocent man, you killed the innocent Messiah. And, and his, he is now raised and seated next to God. You're in big trouble. And their response is not, hmm, maybe we should look into this. Their response is, we've got to kill these guys. Is that any different than what happened with Jesus? Jesus comes and he tells them, look, this is how it is. And they go, well, our only response is to kill him. It's the best they can do. But this gives us a hint as to what's coming. This is going to be a common response from people in authority and people in power is they're going to want to kill him. There is going to be resistance to it. So that's what happens. You can imagine the council is now in an uproar and they're, they're yelling, execute him. And suddenly this gentleman stands up. Um, it's it's um, Gamaliel. So verse 35 um, I'm sorry, 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside. So you can imagine the council is in an uproar. They are losing their mind. They want to kill this man. They're, they're tearing their robes. They're throwing dirt in the air. They're just in a, in a whole big uproar. And suddenly this elderly man steps up. And the whole room goes silent. This is my how I picture it happening. This elder statesman, this this revered teacher stands up and everybody stops and looks at him. That's who Gamaliel is. You, you have to get who this man is. Luke kind of summarizes it for us. He's a Pharisee. Um, he's a teacher of the law and he's held in honor by the people. That's a nice summary. It falls a little bit short of who Gamaliel was. Um, the Jews have something called the Mishnah. And what the Mishnah is, it's the recording of Jewish oral traditions. Teachings of different rabbis get added to the Mishnah. And in, uh, um, around the second century, a rabbi named Judah the Prince compiled these oral teachings into a book called the Mishnah. Uh, this followed the destruction of the temple. So this was kind of, we need to write this stuff down. That's the Mishnah. Gamaliel is mentioned in the Mishnah. He's that high of a person. And not only is he mentioned, listen to how it mentions him. It says that when Gamaliel died, quote, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died when Gamaliel died. That's not true, but do you see what kind of person this is? So when Gamaliel stands up, the room goes silent. This is a significant teacher. And so what Gamaliel is about to do is he's about to give him a history lesson, his interpretation, and a warning. So that's Gamaliel's short message, a history lesson, and his interpretation of it, and a warning to them. So here's how he does it. He says, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel looks back at the history of Israel, and he says, we've seen this before, you guys. Once the leader's dead, the group disbands. That's his advice. This section, this, this little statement by Gamaliel is loaded with some problems, though. Um, and when people argue about the inerrancy of Scripture, this is one of the things they cite. Here's the problem. Theodos 
is documented by Josephus. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian, and he wrote about the, the history of the Jews. He, he was a Jewish man who converted, became part of the Roman Empire, and so he's kind of this interface between the Romans and the Jews, and he's explaining to the, the Romans who these Jewish people are. And he mentions Theodos, and it pretty much lines up with this. Theodos led some people away. Um, what he did was he, he claimed that he was a prophet, and he was going to take these people to the Jordan River, and he was going to part the river by his own authority and lead them through. And the, this group of people were going to just have this miraculous prophet amongst them. Well, the governor found out, didn't like it, and killed them all. That's how things were done back then. The problem is that happened in 46, 48 AD. It was a little bit too late. If Gamaliel is saying this when Luke reports it, 46 to 48 is way too late. Jesus probably died around 33 AD. This is no more, so far as the narrative is going, it's no more than a couple of years after that at the most. So how could he mention Theodos if Theodos wasn't around then? That's a problem, problem one. Problem two is the next thing he says is after him, after this Theodos, then Judas rose up in the days of the census. Well, Judas did rise up in the days of the census, and that was about 6, BC, or 6 AD. It wasn't after Theodos, it was well before him. And that's attested. We know that that happened. So is, what happened here? One of the theories is Luke relied on Josephus and just got it all jumbled misunderstood it because he talks about, Josephus talks about Theodos and then he mentions the sons of Judas. And so Luke obviously just got it wrong when he wrote it down because he ripped off um, Josephus. When we've gone through Luke, what did Luke, what did Luke's gospel sound like? Didn't he repeatedly announce this happened at this time when this person was doing it? He is the meticulous historian. For him to make this mistake here, is just asking too much. It seems way out of line with the way that Luke has been writing. And we can't say, well, obviously Gamaliel got it wrong because Gamaliel spoke before Theodos ever did his thing. So did Luke get it wrong? Did, did Gamaliel get it wrong? What's going on? Well, here's, here's what I think is the best way to resolve this. One of the other things that Josephus says is that there were about 10,000 re uh, revolts in this time. He's speaking hy hyperbolically. He doesn't mean actually 10,000. What he says by 10,000 is there were a lot of revolts. This happened regularly. So it's entirely possible that Theodos led a revolt, BC most likely, and then at some point after him, Judas arose, and we just don't have a record of that Theodos. Theodos is a fairly common name. It's not that unusual. So I think that's just the easiest way to resolve it is to say there's a Theodos we don't know about because it's chronological snobbery to say, if we don't know about it, it didn't happen. The only theatist we know of is that one, and that must be it, so you must be wrong. It's like, well, give it a week. One of the things we keep finding in, in Israel is every time you stick a shovel in the ground, we find something else that confirms the scriptures. So just because we don't know that theatist doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? That's the history lesson. In a nutshell, this is how he sums it up with his interpretation. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But it's of, if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying, look at this historical lesson. Look at these revolts that have happened before, these, these supposed important people, somebody really big. Once they were killed, eventually their followers disbanded and the whole thing fizzled. 
that's what he's saying. And so he says, look, if, if it's possible, if it's, if it's likely that these people are just, you know, following a man, this Jesus of Nazareth who's been killed, he's dead. Give it a couple weeks. They'll, they'll fall apart. That's what he's, he's leaning towards. As a matter of fact, that if statement that he says, if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it's called a third-class conditional. I didn't study Greek for no reason. <laughs> Recognize a third-class conditional. What it means is if, and this is the most probable outcome, the way it's phrased, the, the, the way that the, that the Greek is constructed there, it's this is the most likely. So what Gamaliel is saying is, you guys, this is probably a man-made thing, and we don't need to worry about it. And then he goes on and he says, if it's from God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. And the way he says that if is it's just, I'm just stating a fact. I'm not deciding if it's true or not. But he's already tipped his hand. He said, if, and it probably is, that this is from man, then, then that's the case. So this is his interpretation. If, if a, a revolution starts and the leader is killed early enough in the revolution, the whole thing falls apart. And what he's getting at is these things tend to be personality-based. There, there's a strong personality that's able to lead this thing. And once that personality is cut off, then the whole thing unravels before you. So I was looking at the um, Branch Davidians. Do you remember that from 1993 with David Koresh? Um, that was a splinter group. The Branch Davidians was some weird splinter group, and they splintered because splinter groups tend to splinter a lot. And David Koresh had this really strong, charismatic personality and said, I am the prophet. I am the Messiah. You need to follow me. Well, the ones they branched off from got in a gunfight with them because it's Texas, I guess. So they get in a gunfight, and that's where the ATF stepped in, and it turned into this massacre where 80 people are killed. But it was because of David Koresh. It was because of that strong personality. Now, there is an instance. So is, is Gamaliel correct in his interpretation? Almost always, yes. But what Gamaliel is, is he's wise. And wise means it's not always exactly this way, but generally tends to go this way. The only one movement that I could think of where the leader was killed early on and the movement survived was Mormonism. In Mormonism, Joseph Smith came out and said, I found these golden tablets. And he drew a bunch of people together and they followed him to this town in, in Illinois called Nauvoo. And he began to establish his, his, um, his headquarters there in Nauvoo. And eventually, splinter group splinter, so they start fighting. There's some infighting in Nauvoo, and it winds up Joseph Smith gets arrested, and then he dies. And he fell out of a window and was shot, and then when he hit the ground, he was dead, and they continued to shoot him after he was dead. Now, normally you would think at that point, Mormonism's over. But they had another leader, Brigham Young, who stepped up. And Brigham Young said, all right, we've got to leave Nauvoo. We're heading into the territories, and the promised land is in Utah. And so they settled in Salt Lake City. So in that case, it, it was kind of the exception that proves the rule, is this group started based on the strong personality of Joseph Smith, but there was somebody right there in the wings to take over. Brigham Young stepped in and led the, the movement after that. The other thing that happened was they didn't remain in place. They headed to an isolated area. Utah was open territory. It was still a territory at the time. When they got there, it became a US state, and then they were in trouble. But where they were heading was open territory. So he led his group away from the persecution of the trouble that they would face. So what about Christianity? Jesus Christ died extremely early, very early in the movement. He only taught three years and he's executed. So typically, given the, the grand scope of 
history, you would expect Christianity to last maybe a generation and then be gone. Especially Christianity that's under severe persecution and being arrested and being, being opposed, not just by the Jews, but also by the Romans. There was no safe ground for them. So Christianity should have gone away because the leader was dead. But it didn't. That's Gamaliel's advice. Is he's saying, look, if this is of men, this thing's gone. Don't, if you kill these guys, now you've made even more martyrs. And if they have more martyrs, then the, the, the movement's going to continue because now more people are dying. So leave these men alone, let them be, and watch. This thing will fade away. But it didn't. And not only did it not fade away, it didn't go to a hidden promised land either, did it? The, the Mormons up and moved from Nauvoo, where they were receiving pressure from the, the Illinois governor, to the territories where they could be left alone and, and brew their own um, way of living out there. The Essenes, that was a group that was around in the, the beginning of the Christian era, right around the BCs, they had this apocalyptic view of how the scriptures would unfold and they were going to be the only pure ones. And so where did they do? They charged out into the desert. That's where we get the, the Dead Sea Scrolls is because they hid stuff in, the, in the, 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 um, the holes in the ground that they lived in. They departed. They had their own separate way. What did the Christians do? The Christians sat still. The, the Christian church didn't disappear into a, a hidden spot out in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, Christianity remained in the middle of the cauldron, and it didn't just survive, it thrived. It didn't just start in Jerusalem and end in Jerusalem. It spread throughout the entire world. The entirety of Western culture is shaped by Christianity. Gamaliel's right. If this was for man, it shouldn't have made it. That was his interpretation. And, and there's some wisdom to it, even though he himself seems to be leaning towards, you know, this is not real, so don't worry about it. His advice to them is actually correct. This is something, if it's, of, if it's of man, it's dead. Now, this is extremely important for us as we head into the rest of Acts because what happens next is Peter gets killed. I mean, uh, uh, Stephen gets killed. Uh, the apostles get arrested. Uh, James gets executed. The persecution just ramps up. Saul ravages the church. He comes with anger and fire, and he's ready to burn them down. So... Gamaliel's wise advice at this stuff or at this juncture is preparing us for that. If this is from man, given the tininess of it, given the, the location of it, given the persecution it faces, this should fail. He's right. But the other half of what he says is, if it's from God, you can't oppress it. You can't overthrow it. If this is something from God, we're sunk. That's what he's saying. There's no way to oppose this. That's the history of the church. That is the glory of the church, is why did Christianity survive? It shouldn't have. Given the, the sheer statistics of the, the range of history, there's no reason that we should be Christians today. It should have extinguished within that first century, especially since they didn't go out and find a promised land where they could hide and, and hive off and then just slowly dwindle in numbers and die. Instead, just what Jesus said, isn't it? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the other parts of the earth. That's where the gospel is going. It's continuing to spread today. The church still hasn't been extinguished. So Gamaliel's got some good advice here. He's right. But he's being very careful. He's being very careful in what he does. I think the reason he said what he just said 
as he's trying to just calm the council. Let's, let's just stop here. So when you read through commentaries, or if you look online and, and ask about Gamaliel, you'll get he was a wonderful man. He interceded. He stopped the, the execution of the apostles. What a great guy. Isn't he wonderful? Or this is nothing but rank pragmatism. This is nothing. There's nothing real going on here. He just interceded. And I think the real picture of who Gamaliel is, is it's a little bit more complicated than that. Gamaliel is wise, and wisdom in this case is not coming to the council and saying you're all wrong, because all that would do is get him executed too. Nor is it wise to come in and say they're all wrong, because then the fires are stoked even higher. Gamaliel said they're wrong. They must be wrong. Gamaliel's wisdom comes in and he says, hold on now. The way out of this is just let him be. If it dies, it dies, and it probably will. So that's his wisdom. He's just there to calm the council. He doesn't care about these people. Apparently not anyway. Not the way I'm reading it. So that's, that's his warning to them. That's his approach. And what he says, kind of unbeknownst to him, is just marvelous because it really is a, a strong apologetic for Christianity. It survives. Now you can say the same thing for Judaism too, couldn't you? Judaism lost their homeland. They had a secured homeland. In 70 AD, the Romans came and raised it, and they were dispersed everywhere. And yet, Jews are still around today. They're still an identifiable people. They haven't been defeated either. So is God doing something with the Jews? I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. Depends on what you mean by Jews. That's a very complicated question, because there are Jews who don't believe in God, there are Jews who believe and wait for the Messiah. There are Jews who believe in God but don't wait for the Messiah. There are Jews who say we should return to Israel because it's our homeland. There are Jews who say we shouldn't return to Israel because it's our homeland. And there are Jews who go, we don't care about any of that. I'm just going to survive. So when we say the Jews, that's too big to nail down and say this is what's happening with them. But they're still an identifiable people group. This is, this is something that continues to go on. So here's what happens. Here's the warning that Gamaliel finishes with. After he establishes this great apologetic for the church, he says, you might be found opposing God. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's right. But you know what, you guys? If you oppose this group and they are from God, you might be opposing God. And, and what actually is happening is they are opposing God. What Gamaliel never got around to is saying, you might be opposing God. Therefore, we should stop and listen to these men. They claim this Jesus is risen from the dead. That, that's something we could verify right now. We could go, go double-check that right now. Let's look into that. This Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Maybe there's something to that. We don't know. We didn't look into it. We just opposed it. Let's stop and take a look because we might be opposing God. Never got to that point, did he? That wasn't his agenda. He's not looking for the truth. He's looking for calm and peace. The, the whole thing that the council wanted was to make sure we don't lose our country. And if we cause a big uproar because of this, the Romans are going to come in and kick us all out. So we better just keep things calm. They're just trying to keep the lid on the, on the pan. But what he says is absolutely true. You might be opposing God. This Christianity thing, if you're opposed to it, you might be opposing God. That, that's a significant warning. And where do you think all of these people who judge them, who beat them are at this moment? Are they praising God in, in, in the name of Jesus Christ before the throne of glory? I hope so. I don't know. But just based on what we're seeing now, not likely. 
They may have been opposing God. And if they were, they're in dire straits. And it's only getting worse. So when we talk about the church, when we talk about Christianity, what we're getting down to is not the building, not the structure, not who's in charge or what personality is running things. When we talk about opposing God, when we talk about the church at this point, what we're talking about is that simple message that Peter gave him at the beginning. This Jesus whom you killed, God raised, God raised, the God of our fathers, the God of the old covenant, he raised him. He is ascended to the right hand of glory. He now sits in a position of authority over the entire universe so that he can give people repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's the simple message. That's what we talk about when we talk about the church. Not the structure, not the the fancy gowns or the lack of them. None of that. That's what he's looking at. And if you're opposing that, you might be opposing God. That's the warning. So Gamaliel succeeded. The next thing says, so they took his advice. Well, they kind of took his advice. They almost took his advice. They settled down. They've decided they're not going to kill him. And when they called the apostles, remember he'd sent them out. Now they call him back in. They bring him in. They beat him, and they charge him not to speak in the name of Jesus and let him go. So they kind of took his advice. Um, the advice was, leave these men alone. Well, we're going to beat him first. And then we're going to tell him to shut up, and then we'll let him go. So that's kind of what happened. Where did the apostles go with this? They left the presence of the council sore and beaten and just dejected and ready to pack it in. No, rejoicing. They left rejoicing. Why? Because they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the cause. The apostles had no question, are you opposing God? They absolutely 100% believed, yes, you're opposing God. And so if you beat me, that just means I'm worthy of the truth. That means I said the truth to you. And, and that's the opposition. So when we look at the rest of Acts, as we go, continue to go through Acts, and the church meets opposition and arrest and persecution, we look at this, you say, well, did it fail? Is, is something going wrong? And, and what we need to remember is that when we're rejected like that, when we're opposed like that, we need to rejoice because we've been kind of worthy. Now, I doubt if any of us are ever going to be beaten for the gospel. It could happen, but I, I'm, I'm dubious if that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to get... That bad in, in, in our lifetime here. Though other things happen that I didn't think were going to happen. So don't, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. So take that with a grain of salt. But as Christianity becomes increasingly unpopular, we will suffer in some way rejection, opposition, ridicule. And what we can do is stand in the face of that with Gamaliel's advice in our ears. If this thing was from man, it would have failed long ago. If this thing is for God, you can't overpower it. You can't stop it. You cannot end this. And you may be opposing God. That's the message. So they go and they're rejoicing because they suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. And then how does it end? Did they obey the council? What did Peter start off with? He led with, we must obey God, not you. And so what does it say? Every day in the temple... They went back to the temple, the place where you're going to get in the most trouble. You want to be identified quickly as being a troublemaker? Go stand in the temple and talk about Jesus. Every day, they're in the temple, and they go from house to house. They didn't have a church building like we do. The church met in people's houses. They gathered when they could. They got together. So they go to the temple, house to house, and they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ is the Lord. They did not stop preaching and teaching that Christ is is Jesus. 
Jesus is the Messiah. That's what got them in trouble in the, in the uh, temple. And they never stopped saying it. They, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for that. That's what happens when you have the confidence of Gamaliel's estimation. And, and I think Luke dropped it on us so that when that continues to happen, we'll understand how can the church continue in that kind of persecution? How can I continue in that kind of persecution? How can I continue in that kind of opposition? Why is it fair that, that people in um, other parts of the country, or other parts of the world are being executed for their Christianity? Lord, didn't you lose it? Why is this happening? And we can look at that and say, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. They did it to your Lord. They did it to his apostles. They've been doing it all along. Of course the people are going to be opposed like that. But rejoice because they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of the cause, for the name of Christ, for Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. So one of the apologetics, and, and apologetics will only take you so far, um, apologetics at its best can clear objections. But one of the apologetics for Christianity is, why is there Christianity today? Why is it still around? How on earth could this have happened? People will say, well, Jesus never existed. That is thoroughly dismissed. People who, historians who study that deny that Jesus didn't exist. There's no way that Jesus didn't exist. We have more historical evidence for the existence of Jesus than we do of anybody else, just about. So that idea, people will throw it at you, that's, that's nonsense. If you go research it, you'll know better. You have to wrestle with the idea that Jesus Christ existed, he taught, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's a historically established fact. He died. His followers said that he rose again. The people who knew him the closest said, this Jesus raised from the dead. Not only did he raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And based on that truth, they went out and changed the world. You have to reconcile with that. You have to wrestle with that. So why is the church around today? Shouldn't after the death of his leader, shouldn't Peter have just gone home and went back to fishing? Why would he go and suffer persecution for something he knew was blatantly not true? Why would the church suffer for something they thought might be true and might not? The church believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he currently reigns at the right hand of the power of God in heaven. And that's what equipped them and empowered them for daily living, for living together in community, for mission to tell other people about it, is because to do otherwise, to do otherwise would be to oppose God. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for Gamaliel's wise advice, and I wish he had gone farther, farther with it. I wish he had taken it to the next step. Um, Lord, I thank you for the outrageous testimony of the apostles, the, the overwhelming testimony of the apostles. I can't imagine people who would be joyous that they were beaten, who would rejoice in that fact. And yet, Lord, that's a testimony throughout the church, throughout the history of the church, 2,000 years of people being beaten and rejoicing. Lord, I just pray that we are not opposing God. Lord, would you lead us individually, corporately as a church, um, even more corporately as the church in the Antelope Valley, as different denominations, different type of, of churches meeting in different places. Lord, would you lead us to live this kind of a life, assured of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, ready for persecution and opposition, and yet bearing forward because we understand, Lord, this is an unstoppable movement because it's from God. Lord, thank you for the gospel. 
May it always be on our lips. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.